Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt, and for Roy Green, one more time on the podcast this week. Today, we have more on the We Charity Scandal with David Mosscroft, BC-based political scientist and author. Our weekly hit with global news correspondent Matthew Fisher on Chinese international affairs. The Conservative Party's own Pat Kelly on the $19 billion promised by the current federal government. And many big-name verified Twitter accounts were unable to say what was on their minds. Instead, there was somebody trying to swindle their followers out of Bitcoin. Jesse Miller, social media guru and founder of Mediated Reality, has more on that cyber attack and social media discussions. It's all coming up on the Roy Green Show podcast. Do you care about all of this morality that is on the Prime Minister? Do you care about the ethics? Do we even care? Well, there's been an awful lot of people that get really excited when these things happen because, you know, the notion is, is that, oh, yeah, this is it. This is the one. David Moscrop is a BC-based political scientist and author. He joins us now on the phone. Hi, David. Seems to me, David, that we are more and more excited when, you know, these big stories happen, but more and more often it seems like nothing ever comes of them. David, do we even care? Well, we care about a lot of things. The question is how much do we care, right? Yeah. So, you you know, if, if... you're trying to evaluate the politician and the party and government. You're going to care about their record. That's going to include legislation. That's going to include personal comportment, ethics scandals. It's going to include what they've done for you and people you care about. So you're, when you're trying to make a political decision or judgment, you're weighing all these different things. And it's not like scandals are new in Canada. Uh, you know, the, the founding of the country was, was soon scandalous. So you John A. McDonald, the Pacific scandal, he asked for a bribe. There's a telegram. You can see it. He asked for ten thousand dollars <laughs> back, right? Um, and, and At least he's upfront about it. Give him that. Well, exactly. I mean, he wasn't. He exactly back then they knew how to do scandals. They didn't mess around. But then there was the Munsinger affair that tied up in the Cold War and spying. There was the sponsorship scandal. There was the Duffy Wright thing. You know, no, none of this is new, and we do care about it. But the question is, how much do we care, and is that enough to say affect our vote? Well, it is possible that, you know, the voters can look in the mirror and say that we just don't do enough research these days, that we read headlines. So as a political scientist, I mean, that must be a bit of a gift for for everyone who's trying to get elected because Canadians, people around the world, voters, you know, are seem to be spending less and less time educating themselves on what's really going on. Well, I mean, there was probably never a golden age of, of civic attention spans, right? I mean, or an inclusion. I mean, even if you were to look back and say, well, you know, 80 years ago, people were dialed in. The fact is, journalism was worse 80 years ago, and fewer people were included in in civic life. So in some ways, we're we're far better than we were before. Uh, The other thing is, the, the, the counter to that is there's so much stuff coming across our desks coming across our phones, coming across our iPads, coming across our television. We just, you know, we're inundated, and it makes it really difficult to pay attention, deep attention, to any one thing, right? Think of how much information you're exposed to in a given day. Mm-hmm. Think of how much time you have to dedicate to that compared to trying to get the kids to school or, well, back in the day to school. <laughs> yeah, right, back in, remember the <laughs> old days when they used to go to school? <laughs> when they were at school. 
uh, or, or, or you're trying to, to do your job or keep the house clean or get to appointments or whatever. And so think of how much time and energy and attention you have to actually pay to this stuff. And it's actually really minuscule. And that's why you find that people will sort of scan the headlines or scan the stories. Uh, but, but that said, when they do so, a little box gets ticked in your head, right? You have a feeling about something. I like that. I don't like that. I trust that person. Don't. You tick a box and you sort of file that away. Those ticks add up over time. And that's how, in some part, we end up with impressions of politicians and their performance. Hmm. So this might be cynical of me. So you can call me out if it is. Because I believe in the power of the people. I really do. I believe that if we truly cared and paid attention, then people would vote differently. It's like, you know, there's so many families. And I read a tweet from a, a person online. She said, she said, I'm a recover. She's an American. But I thought that th- this is really true for most families. She had said, I'm a recovering Republican. And she said, I'm not even welcome at family gatherings anymore because she just doesn't fit. So the point of that is not the American part. The point of that is that in many families, we've been told you are liberal. We've been told you are conservative. We've been told these things over time. And we need to put ourselves into this political box instead of going into an election saying, what's best for me? What's best for my family? What's best for my community today? Because everything is constantly changing anyway. Things are changing. And when we put ourselves in a box, we don't really look outside the box. Here's my point. Blackface happened in the election cycle. Mm Mm-hmm. This is not happening in the election cycle. Is there even a hope that this is going to impact anything if there's an election coming up? Well, I mean, it'll probably have some marginal effect. But but the fact is, scandals like this in and of themselves don't usually have much of an effect unless they're something like the Pacific scandal. But even then, I mean, John A. McDonald has been around for, for some time. So think of it this way. Go back to the sponsorship scandal or ad scam. That cost the Liberals uh, government. It cost the government by reducing them to a minority government in 2003-2004. And then that led the way to them being defeated and replaced by Stephen Harper and the Conservatives. But you know what did that? In part, it was people getting sick and tired of liberal corruption and scandals that had been sort of dogging them for a decade. But it was the Gomery inquiry. Paul Martin called it inquiry. That kept it in the news. That kept it front and center. And that was what reduced the Liberals. So if you're the opposition... Your goal is to keep this front and center in the news because it's going to slowly, slowly do damage to the liberals. And it could have a marginal effect that ends up being the end of them. Because here's the thing. One scandal we kind of you know, forgive, shrug off. After time, we get sick and tired of it and we're just ready for a replacement. However, that requires the opposition parties to have their ducks in some sort of row. And if you look at the NDP and the conservatives right now, that's not the case. Now, I'm not a political scientist, nor am I good at any of this stuff. Like, it is so far out of my lane, the strategy things. But I do, I am left with this question, and why are there no moderates in Canada? Because to me, it seems like Canadians are particularly moderate culture people. You know, we look at all sides of things. There are many people that will say, yeah, okay, well, you know, you have a right to have a rifle. Um, but what's the big deal if you register it, right? Like, you're, we need to take care of the homeless people, but we need to be able to afford it. I mean, there seems to be quite the moderate a group of people in Canada. Is it just one of those things that there's just no passion around moderate politics? Well, I mean, the fact is, you know, most voters are don't have a coherent ideology. Most voters aren't diehard partisans. That's true in the U.S. as well, even though there are some extraordinarily stringent and often toxic partisans. Most voters aren't like that. Most Mm. voters pay sort of fleeting attention to politics. 
they have lots of capacity. It's not that people are dumb. People aren't stupid. It's just that people are doing other things, right? The whole point of having a representative democracy is that you don't have to play politics 24-7. You get to live your life. Even I prefer that. Even I spend most of my time doing other things in politics, and I'm a columnist and an academic hmm. who studies it. I don't want to spend all my time doing it. Um, however, parties have strategies that are that are sort of premised on trying to win as much of the center as possible while, while mobilizing the diehards, right? And so you'll see that play out in an interesting way. So during a leadership race, you might look at people and say, what in God's name are they doing? Well, the answer is they're playing to the diehards because that's who their audience is right now, right? That's what you see with Peter, o, uh, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole right now in the conservative leadership race. Mm-hmm. But that changes in a general. And so you do see some moderation when the strategy shifts to try to get that next 10%, try to get 38, 39, 40% of voters who are the ones who are going to elect you. So there's plenty of moderate behavior going on. The question is, what gets the attention? It's not the moderate stuff that gets the attention. It's the outlying stuff that gets the attention because it's sexy, because it's shiny. Yeah, that's the so passion. There's plenty part more that moderation than you think. It's just mm-hmm. we aren't shining a light on it. Well, in American politics, you see that very much. You see this uh, go hard after all the things, right, that are super conservative or super liberal, and then all of a sudden you get elected, and then it's like, well, not quite, right? I mean, Joe Biden has said that about, which affects Canada in a big way with Keystone Pipeline, that he's a hard no on it. Well, you know, people everywhere are already saying, well, he's more of a conversation than anybody else, and it's possible that he'll back that up. So it is interesting to me... um, in your personal opinion, as a as a political scientist, we scandal does it have legs? Well, I mean, I'm a little bit surprised that it's lasted as long as it has, and it's grown as much. I finished a, a column a couple of days ago that's coming out, and it was about the deficit and the debt. Remember the deficit and the debt? Remember we cared so much about that because it was unprecedented and it was going to change everyone's life permanently, and we cared about that for what 18 hours? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then it was we. But you know, and I'm not saying we the we stuff isn't important. It is. What I'm saying is we've paid outsized attention to it, to, to even, you know, shunning the deficit and the debt, which is, has unprecedented in the last several decades. Uh, so I do think it has some legs, and it will continue to as Parliament scrutinizes us, right? And the question is, how does this stuff stay in, in the news, the same way that um, the S&C-Lavalin stuff stays in the news? There are the journalists, press, they, they do their research, they press, they talk about it, they publish stories about it, and politicians scrutinize and bring this uh, before, say, ethics committee or the finance committee, which is what Parliament's doing right now. And keep in mind, this is a minority parliament. So the opposition parties have more power and control than they usually do. So I would imagine, given those things, this will, will drag on for a little while, at least until the next shiny thing pops up and captures our attention. I find that disappointing. <laughs> I really do. I'm as cynical as you are. <laughs> yeah, you are, my new yeah, friend. I mean, the cynicism isn't unreasonable. I think it's a pretty accurate uh, well, reflection of what's going on. I definitely think there is an ethics fatigue going on with this prime minister. I will certainly agree there because there just seems to be David Moscrop, BC-based political scientist and author, davidmoscrop.com. If you want to learn more about his writing, uh, check it out. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your Sunday. Matthew Fisher, welcome to the show. How you doing, Matthew? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I read your column and your opinion piece, and it's very, very direct about exactly that, about Canada needing to look elsewhere. It's time. Or did I misunderstand? What are you talking about? That is certainly what I've been talking about. It's a point I've been trying to make for a couple of years now. I do notice, I'm flattering myself here a bit, but that in the last four or eight or ten weeks, some other people 
are saying the same thing. Not that I was the first person to come upon this idea. It has been out there uh, in certain circles, people following the issue closely, and that is that Canada put so many of its eggs in the China basket, just about all of them, in terms of Asian trade, and that has not turned out very well for us on so many different levels, most famously with the two Michaels and the uh, the Ms. Meng extradition uh, proceedings in Vancouver, but but in many other ways as well, because China has been up to all kinds of nefarious things in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, most recently with the Indian border and also with its Tibetan and uh, Uyghur Muslim minorities. There's such a long list of things, banning Canadian pork, uh, uh, canola, beef, uh, and still some uh, prohibitions on Canadian canola today. Uh, And and so Canada really has to look other places. And so many people, the standard reaction is, we can't, China's just too big, we can't offend them, we need to do business. But but my point, Shane, is we have so many other options. Uh, Maybe they don't all together add up to China, but they come pretty darn close and who knows where they lead a few years from now. And certainly it would mean we'd have a lot more friends in the world. Well, I'm, I'm a business owner, and I'm a pretty moderate business owner, in that I always land in the place of, you know, build your base and then expand from the base, right? Like cover your bills and then expand from that. And I look at pork. My notes from your uh, column were pork, number one, because pork was one of those very suspicious, convenient, oh, look, we we found a document that said, this was not okay, right? And canola was the same. There wasn't a whole lot of explanation there. When one country can basically handcuff a whole industry in Canada, we've got to have it wrong. Are we complacent now that we just don't go looking elsewhere? Well, we got the deal. You know, we've got a, one customer, so that's okay. We we don't have to. We can close up shop. Well, you know, for years uh, doing business with the United States was so easy that well, we had these big import and export numbers. Almost all of it was with the United States, and we felt pretty good about it. And Canadian businessmen were not particularly adventurous overseas, other than a, a few mining companies, a few select examples. Uh, and I think it harmed us uh, greatly. And we do become terribly exposed. China's threatening now to kill our lobster export uh, industry, for uh, example. Uh, they've threatened to cut off tourists coming to China post-COVID. Uh, uh, they've talked about students uh, fearing racist attacks here, and I think that we will find in the next few weeks the number of Chinese students registering for Canadian schools is going to be way down, and not only because of COVID, but because of other things. And we, the options that we have, Shane, are so many. Japan, India and Vietnam in particular. I've met very senior officials of those governments in the last year, and they wonder why Canada doesn't even want to talk to them, that even at this late point, it was all about China. If we could double our trade with South Korea and Japan, if we could quadruple our trade with Vietnam, if we could double or or triple our trade with India, uh, these are great places to do more business. Taiwan is another, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia. Uh, We could do more in Latin America. Uh, There are so many different ways we could head if we are a confident nation.
Well, you can't even throw out the economic growth of immigrants into this because the countries that you emigrate from and come to Canada, all of those ones that you list there from Vietnam and, and South Korea, they're big, but they're not that huge in Canada. But there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, folks from those countries moving here and building their Canadian version of their cultures. But when you look at India and you look at China, those numbers can't be far off for emigration to Canada. So you can't even go after the good relationship to grow our economy from that perspective. In America, I don't agree with the methods. Let me just be clear about that, about the things the president has done. But he has been very clear about the bad deals with China. And so we're not even alone in this battle. I mean, there are other countries that are taking a stand. And here we are just sitting quietly on the bench. Well, you're absolutely right. And it isn't only the United States. As you say, it is Australia. It is the United Kingdom. It's France. It's Germany. It's Sweden. It's Japan, which is repatriating factories from China. Mm -hmm. The Japanese government will pay uh, Japanese companies to close their factories in China and bring them back uh, from there because they felt there was such great dependence. And in terms of immigrants, a country I've omitted mention of uh, is the Philippines, which actually supplies Canada with the greatest number of immigrants today, more than China and India. Not that many Canadians know that. Now, the trade opportunities there are perhaps less with some of the other countries, but there are trade opportunities with the Philippines as well. It's remarkable. Uh, It's a great piece. Where can everybody find it, Matthew? Uh, They can find it on the Global News website. Uh, It was to have uh, been out there today originally, and I think it's going out tonight, and they can read it tomorrow morning, uh, sometimes for many different reasons about what's happening in the news. Things uh, get delayed a little bit. But if you go to the Global News website and commentary, or you punch in my name and commentary, you you can find a lot of pieces that I wrote if you Googled me or binged me or or, or whatever uh, search engine you, you prefer to use. All right, it's Matthew Fisher. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Shane. If you're looking to maybe learn a little bit more about this topic, this is a great place to start. Conservative Party's Pat Kelly, the Shadow Minister for Finance on the program. Hey, Pat. Good morning, or good afternoon. Thanks for spending some time with us here on the Sunday. We have so many places we can go, Mr. Kelly. We can go into the $19 billion, which I would like to talk about, plus the extension boost to the CERB um, and the shift to the wage supplement, plus maybe a couple of uh, questions I have about the way things are going. Can we start with the $19 billion and go there and get your perspective on that money? Well, the uh, the, the $19 billion includes uh, certain, quite a bit of that was uh, included in the snapshot of the, the week earlier, but it's, a, it's an expansion up to, to $19 billion. Um, the breakdown on this will will assist provinces in some of the the things that are going to going to have to happen if we're going to be able to return to a full and proper um, full employment economy. And there's there's really just no substitute for that, and, and no way around it. We we the uh, path that we're on is uh, is wholly unsustainable. And we we saw with the snapshot of a couple of weeks ago that. Um, it was significantly worse than anyone's worst-case scenario at $343 billion uh, de- deficit for the year. So this this just simply can't continue, and we do need to, uh, you know, there are going to be, there's ongoing need for support measures for many Canadians. Not everybody can get get back to work, 
and um, so there, there's there's no doubt about that. But but from this point, we need to tailor support measures toward the goal of of getting to a safe uh, employment economy. The the CERB, for example, um, was a program specifically designed to to encourage people not to work uh, at a time where people were being told they they couldn't work or that it it was not safe to do so we didn't want people to think they had to go to work uh in order to survive so that that's that program was designed to discourage work we need to get past that and think of of programs that will encourage people uh to actually be able to get back and and work safely Uh, so the, the the 19 billion that was just announced it it's um you know, among many um, expenditures that, that the federal government is undertaking, um, designed to assist provinces and um, with things like contract uh, contact tracing, uh, testing, and and whatnot. Uh, uh, not all of that is is new money, though. I think that that fourteen of the nineteen, I think, was included in the snapshot. So, uh, but but nevertheless, uh, and this is, I guess, the the issue and part of the problem with the. The snapshot itself is all of this is a moving target. Uh, you know, programs that were included in that snapshot, which presented uh, a worse than worst case scenario for the deficit, uh, are still expanding. Um, even a couple of weeks after we have more uh, programs, uh, we've, we've, Parliament has been recalled so that tomorrow there will be uh, more debate on, uh, on, on additional program spending. Uh, so, you know, all of this must, in, in fairly short order, begin leading back to a an employment-based economy, um, not a, a government-support-based economy. Now, this is out of my lane, and this is why I bring people like you on, because I openly admit that, that I don't know some of these things, and they're new to me to learn. So the audit... Uh, procedures and, and requests that went through just a few weeks ago in order to be able to look at some of the money. Is that, was that topic expansion, expandable into this, these new things? Because I understand from, from your group, it, meaning uh, Shadow Minister for Finance and looking at all those, those pieces of the puzzle, the Conservative Party and opposition parties in general just wanted to know, okay, well, this is the money that's been gone out. How much has actually gone out, and where did it actually go? Is that going to allow us the space to audit that forward? Well, no, and this is a major concern that we have raised even even from before the, the COVID pandemic. The Under the current government, the Auditor General's office has been starved of, of funds. Uh, beginning in 2018, the Auditor General has pointed out repeatedly at the Public Accounts Committee and uh, and elsewhere that that they simply do not have the funds necessary to perform performance audits and um, and are struggling to, uh, to to really do their jobs. So so this has been ongoing for a while now, and and then we now we have the pandemic and um, with this incredible uh, unprecedented. Uh, public expenditure that's going through, and yet the Auditor General still does not have the funds they have to, to do their, their jobs. This remains a concern. And, uh, you know, the snapshot revealed that at a time where the Auditor General, who has only had, had really, their, their official ask still is only $11 million, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister's office is getting $15 million more for political staff, and uh, the Auditor General is still not getting the funds they need to be able to do performance audits and determine whether value for money is, is happening and whether the, the programs are achieving the, goal, the, the objectives for which they're designed. 
So how about the move from the CERB to the wage supplement? It seems to be the shift has begun, the incentives and access for business. The problem being with business is having the staff to be able to facilitate the communication in regards to it anyway. And I know as a business owner, the thought is, is that if this comes down to an audit down the road, can I afford the audit? Meaning if I bring staff back and I use the wage supplement and then as a business, I get audited those, those business audits, best case scenario, you're looking at a couple grand, which is in today's world for most small businesses. That's a, that's a big nut these days. So the shift from this, the free money. So sorry, I'll just finish my thought there. I realized it sounded like I was done. The shift from the CERB to the wage supplement is still spending, but is at least a move in the right direction because it is very risky for business. Yes, and this is a, a, a problem that we've heard consistently uh, from our, probably every member of parliament from their constituents, from the small business community, the complexity of, of some of these programs, not just the wage subsidy, but also um, other, other supports that the, the government has undertaken. The, the complexity and the obstacles to obtaining access to these programs is, is a significant challenge. And yes, the, the, the fear of... Um, of of audit is is one that that small businesses in particular that that don't just naturally employ uh, an army of accountants and lawyers to uh, to to um, have on hand to to deal with these issues. Um, you know the, the the programs must be simple to be effective, and um, the, the you know the complexity of what what we think is is going to be tabled tomorrow is uh, you know is a concern that uh, that that many have had. Uh, and the, the wage subsidy, though, is not a new program. Of course, the, the wage subsidy was originally announced back in uh, in, in April, and uh, the uptake on it was not what the government expected. And uh, and there were uh, many problems associated with that program. But um, but uh, you know, broadly speaking, yes, we need more more businesses to be able to access it to to access it to to get people back to work. Uh, but uh, the complexity around this has been a, a complaint from the business community, especially the small business community. Uh, in looking in the mirror at small business, I mean, there have been a lot of a lot of small businesses that have been scraping by to begin with, which means that either there's responsibility inside the business or there's a systematic problem in the time and space that small, small business can grow. And that can go everything from the cost of loans uh, to being over leveraged to the cost of minimum wage to the cost of employees all kinds of different things could be built into good or bad design in the business or in the system that allows the business to run on. So looking in the mirror, we have that. Is it better to just, I don't want to say cleanse, but allow the irresponsible and the unfortunate, because I don't want to group them together, businesses that just can't survive in this scenario to recover now? Because bankruptcy is a structure that is there for a reason. Is it better to look at that and rebuild in time or is it better to keep propping this up? Because that's a difficult question for people to hear sometimes. Well, I, I don't think any program of the, of the federal government should be designed to allow uh, a business that was failing before the pandemic to uh, receive uh, public aid to, to cover up or to, um, to, to fix a failing of business. I think that that's, that's, uh, that sort of absence of, of, of moral hazard is, is unfair to, to businesses that, are, that, that had been successful or had, had been getting by at least. And, um, 
and and had been in, in many cases ordered to to shut down to cease their their activity during the pandemic. So I, I think that is a, an important consideration for for policy that that you know the aid measures that are designed to to aid a business that is affected that is otherwise viable um, you know ought not to be um, lack resources because uh, uh, aid measures are, are are bailing out uh, a business that um, that that was not viable viable uh, beforehand yeah Otherwise viable. That's a very, very good statement, yeah. right? That, that's it. And it's hard. It's the hard right. part of the conversation, isn't it? It's not fun to talk about those things, but it, it is a reality. There was a lot of businesses that are, are now being propped up because they might have been 14 days from locking the doors before this even started. Yeah, and, and of course, it's, it's difficult to, and, and it shouldn't be really the, the government's uh responsibility to be the arbiter but but if there are programs there must be criteria and yeah. and uh um but you know and this is where you get into the, the complexity measures that that many are concerned about the you know and and the account of you know the accounting the the uh the sort of funny accounting that may get into uh being able to game a program um, by demonstrating loss or, or yeah. deferral or, or, or whatnot. That's right. And, and my point with all of these questions, I realize they're big questions. So thank you for addressing them clearly for us, is that it does speak to uh, what point does the federal funding just stop helping uh, in business or for the employees of that business? I mean, you look at the, the mental health of the employees that are hanging on to their jobs that they love at a business that they didn't even know might have been failing anyway. And now they've, you know, put their own lives on hold for six months to come back to a job that even when this all ends still could be 14 days away from closing the doors. And that's unfair to those Canadians as well. So it's an important part of the conversation when we look at what is wage supplement and so much more. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. If there's anything you'd like to add, I, I, you can go right ahead. Uh, but um, I think you've been so incredibly clear and uh, I appreciate uh, taking the stand because I got to tell you, I would love to see uh, those numbers. I would love to see the numbers that have actually been spent, where they went and did they go to the right place? Well, yeah. And, and the, the performance audits that the auditor general would normally perform are, are where value for money is determined. Uh, you know, the public accounts, yes, will eventually publish exactly where the money went so that that will hopefully not be uh, an issue of, of knowing actually where the money was spent, but how, you know, the degree to which the money was helpful, the degree to which the, gov- the, the, the programs achieved the objectives that the government has set out, that is, the Auditor General is, uh, is an invaluable officer of Parliament uh, and servant of Canadians to, to determine that and uh, they ought to get the money that they need to be able to do their job. Conservative Party's Pat Kelly, Shadow Minister for Finance. Thank you for sharing time today, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm a dad. I have two teenage kids. And it wasn't at my house. It was at their mom's house where one day somebody broke into the garage. And nothing was, you know, bad about it other than some totes were stolen. Some information, you know, uh, was taken you know, some papers, some technology that was stored in the garage, no bikes or anything like that. The biggest impact of somebody breaking in and stealing that was really the fear for the kids around are the doors locked. And to this day, years later, my son always checks the doors before he goes to bed just to make sure 
that everything is okay, that everything is locked. You see, the funny thing is, is that about the garage door, that particular day, nobody remembers if the door was left open, the garage door. Pretty sure it was locked. Or did somebody break in? Or did somebody have the garage door opener? Because that's a thing. Stealing garage door openers, cloning them, driving around neighborhoods, just pushing the button until a door opens. Was it random? Was it targeted? Was there something in the garage that somebody saw that they wanted to take? That's how we look at theft. It impacts us for a long time. It makes us feel insecure for a very, very long time. It gets in our heads. It sucks. And it makes us wonder. And it makes every bump in the night ask us questions of ourselves. Our guest now is Jesse Miller. This particular conversation about theft and breaking in wasn't a garage. It wasn't anything tangible like we know in our lives day to day. But it doesn't mean it's the kind of theft that should go unnoticed, that should be dismissed. Because somebody still broke in. Somebody was not supposed to have the keys, and they got the keys to Twitter. Now, it wasn't, from what I understand, Jesse, keys in particular to one account, but it was actually keys to the entire Twitter playground. To have this conversation, Jesse joins us, Jesse Miller. He's the founder of Mediated Reality, social media educator, one of my favorite dudes to talk to. Thanks for coming on, Jesse. Thanks for having me, Shane. So this was a this was a big deal. Help us understand what we know today about the attack that happened on those accounts on Twitter. Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of listeners uh, will get an email periodically where they are feeling that potentially one of their email accounts or social media accounts has been compromised, and you get this wave of, now i got to remember my passwords to reset my passwords, uh, because we have become complacent in how we keep ourselves connected to the Internet and our securities. But this was actually very substantial in the sense that it wasn't just about having passwords. Uh, these hackers um, had not only the technology, but the knowledge uh, to be able to get into Twitter's back end and get access to accounts that had double factor authentication, that had changing passwords. This is almost like having a master key for a vehicle from the manufacturer opening up any door for the car. Two-factor authentication is really the big push right now. It says if you log in, you're going to get a text message on your device. You confirm the code. That way, in order to access your account here digitally, you actually have to have the phone in your hand over there. That wouldn't have helped us, right? Not, Not at all, because the user themselves wouldn't have actually got that notification. So if I go and reset my Gmail right now, um, they, I will get a code from Google and they'll say, type this in and I'll get an email afterwards saying uh, your password's changed and uh, just to confirm that you did this. None of that protocol would have happened with this Twitter hack. So this was somebody getting right into the infrastructure inside Twitter though, right? They did not get specifically into uh, Barack Obama's account per se. Well, it- well, interestingly enough, uh, so total in total, 130 accounts were compromised in this. And, and it doesn't seem like a lot considering how many users there are on Twitter, but these were all very substantial accounts, um, not only verified uh, political figures and, and, and prominent individuals in our, in our everyday society, but also Twitter users who have been around for a very long time, actually including what's called the original gangster OG Twitter users, who signed up and have either uh, a one symbol, like a letter A, uh, user account, 
So they didn't necessarily get into the accounts, but they were able to tweet from them. But eight of those 130 accounts um, did have every uh, aspect of full range of the account. So meaning they could read all and, da- and download all direct messages, all contact lists, all individuals that are associated with that person's correspondence on Twitter. So that's a big deal because that's that's somebody getting in and user error is typically blamed for this. That's somebody either it was an inside job or somebody from outside got access to inside through a typical phishing scam that we would see at home, yeah? Yeah, and interestingly enough, because those prominent accounts put out these Bitcoin draws, I mean, Bill Gates was basically saying, send me your Bitcoin and, and I'll, I'll double your money. Um, what's interesting here is that if there is, if, if the size of this hack, just the sense of the scope, uh, was so large and so sophisticated, the bigger concern becomes uh, they only got away with about $130,000 worth of Bitcoin. Um, with this level of, of, of not only intelligence, but approach, there probably actually was another reason for this occurring. And that's why Twitter right now is on a lot of defense saying the eight accounts themselves weren't verified. Um, so it shows that there, those politicians and the Elon Musks of the world, uh, they, they weren't downloaded. But it actually seems almost like they were testing the infrastructure, seeing what they could do with this. And, and that becomes interesting as a lot of our politics and, and on an international scale, the American election, uh, why was Biden and Obama targeted as opposed to the current uh, administration? Well, and that does lead to other questions, too. For example, was that a look over here, because these are prominent people that we will get sucked into talking about, because Barack Obama was a big, you know, influential fella, Joe Biden is running for the presidency. Elon Musk is always in the news about something. I mean, of all the millions of Twitter users, these particular ones seem to be have chosen specifically to perhaps cause a distraction. So that does ask the question, what would they really be going after? Yeah, and, and again, we, we don't necessarily see these false flag associations to most hacks. Um, the reality of it is, is that hacks happen. Some, some hackers want to get their notoriety out there, almost like a graffiti artist trying to make sure that somebody on the other side of the country can see their tag by spray painting a train. Uh, but this uh, was very specific. And uh, those in the security world who are kind of humming and hawing and trying to figure out, we're, we're somewhat wondering when the other shoe might drop on this. More to come. Dun, dun, dun. We just have to wait and see. So, Jesse Miller, the conversation around TikTok has been, you know, TikTok is collecting user information, they're sending it to the Chinese government, so on and so forth. One thing I wanted to talk about, while that is uh, very concerning, clearly, but it's not really, they don't collect any different information than the other platforms do, like Instagram and stuff, do they? Uh, They can, depending on how users will interact with their device. What's really interesting about TikTok, and there is a bit of... um, of a look over here conversation right now. We saw recently a number of uh, individuals in the American Congress have sent a letter for a pres- presidential executive order banning TikTok across the board. But uh, at the federal level, there are a lot of concerns about security devices, especially if you're using a device and you're working for government and you have TikTok on your phone because of the association to the Chinese government having access because it's a Chinese company. But um, Listen, I'm a firm believer in social media being for good, and I'm realistic in knowing that it can be used for evil. Um, I'm also an advocate for sensible use. So I know that Facebook has certain information about me. I know that Twitter has certain information about me. Um, Interestingly enough, even people who aren't on Facebook, there are ghost Facebook accounts about you based on how other people share information about you online. Um, So sometimes this this fear-mongering piece from the United States about TikTok uh, is about uh, about geo 
geopolitical kind of posturing. And, and to be honest with you, the loud, loud noise about TikTok seems to be that the world has embraced TikTok and American politics don't like that they're, um, that they're not forefront with Facebook or, or Instagram, which are American properties. So on, on the larger scale here, TikTok itself, there are concerns when you have a communist government that has access to one of its entities within its borders having access to data. But I know that information about myself is on servers in the United States. I know that information about myself is on servers in, in the European Union. It doesn't mean at the end of the day I'm going to have a government spying on me unless, of course, I want access to that government. So if I travel to the United States, I have to keep in mind the things that I put onto servers in the United States that they have access to. As equally, if I'm going to travel to China, I have to be aware that if I've been a really strong advocate that we need more awareness around the Tiananmen Square massacre, that in China it's somewhat dismissed and highlighted as a, as a nothing issue, that I should be very careful about how I enter that country and ask for permission. So with TikTok right now, we are seeing a bit of a positioning of, of, of politics um, and you know, if you're concerned about information being on the internet, it doesn't matter whether it's TikTok, Facebook, or anything else. Ask yourself how much information are you giving away. Is the base place to sit is that assume that they have access to everything whenever they want it that you put on your device. If you're going to put the app on your device, just assume they have access to everything and then decide from there is it something you want to be a part of? Is that really where we should be starting in our own self security? I think so when it comes to free use of the internet, so any social media platform that's free. But but just to that point, and it's an important one to recognize, is that we feel very comfortable uh, using Facebook in an anglicized Canadian uh, everyday use because it's the United States, it's our, it's our neighbor, it's our best friend. Um, so when we see this positioning from the American uh, presidency currently, um, and even actually Trump's re-election campaign is actually running ads saying, delete TikTok, you're not a patriot if, you, if you're using it, you're, you're being spied on. Um, that positioning is almost reflective of, of Cold War, where you started to see these, these risings of, you know, this is what communists do. Um, so, yes, it is sensible to just be aware of how a country other than your own might be using information, especially if you have intent to visit that country. But in Canada, I mean, we do have laws that allow certain oversight. But in a true democracy, and this is still reflective in both Canada and the United States, it is significantly hard for law enforcement or oversight to get direct access to your account information without checks and balances. The crossover here would be in China and a communist government and the government that is in place in China, that might be significantly easier, which actually might be a little bit envious to some of these politicians who are calling for TikTok to be banned in the United States. And we saw that with the Patriot Act being introduced in 2001. Jesse Miller, founder of Mediated Reality, social media educator. Thank you for the clarity, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Shane. All the best. You too. Uh, Jesse Miller is a very, very, very uh, well-versed in all of those things. One thing I would like to add on to what Jesse said in regards to the U.S. political climate that we get, um, you know, sort of overwhelmed with at times just in information, is that you have to understand TikTok, TikTok, <laughs> oh dear, TikTok users are younger, which would typically, if you wanted to throw them at a, a type of voter, would be a Democratic voter. You have to be aware of that. Substantially younger, in fact. The conservative voters that are a little bit older in the States, generally, are not using TikTok. It's not an access. So there's now in this election, there's going to be a massive platform that has access to younger voters that does not have access to older voters. We can go one of two ways. More older voters can get on TikTok so they can see the messages or uh, the other way around. Just get off. So... 
please include that in your equation when you hear all of this information about TikTok. Social media Social media platforms are grabbing all kinds of information. TikTok is grabbing your copy-paste information, which is concerning. Uh, but the amount of information they grab in general is quite deplorable. They don't need it. And yet you have a new platform in front of a new election that favors younger users, and you have one side of the political spectrum in the States that is saying, shut it down. And that's influencing our decisions in Canada because we get hit by all those messages. Just trying to share the info. Hopefully that provides a little bit of insight for everybody on the decisions that are best for you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 